Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. Hi, my name is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all students can achieve at high levels no matter what their background. So we're visiting school districts that demonstrate what's possible. So far, we've been to wealthy Lexington, Massachusetts, which closed the proficiency gap between white and black high school students and in the process became the top performing district in the country. Then we went to high poverty Steubenville, Ohio, where third and fourth graders' academic achievement puts them toward the top of the country. Today we're going to a district that I think will surprise many of you. I'm going to let Sean Reardon tell you which district. As I said in the first episode, Reardon is the Stanford University scholar whose work provides the analytic base for this podcast. Well, one place that's quite fascinating, I think, is Chicago. That's right, Chicago. The nation's third largest school district with almost 400,000 students, more than 80% of whom come from low-income families. If you're not part of Chicago public schools, or even if you are, you may have heard primarily about its dysfunction. Violence plagues the city, sometimes colliding tragically with schools. Teacher strikes, budget shortfalls, and CEOs who come and go are well-known features of Chicago public schools. A recent CEO was sentenced to four and a half years for corruption. But listen to what fascinates Sean Reardon. But what's striking about Chicago is that third graders in Chicago score well below the national average uh, in terms of their performance, but by eight, but eighth graders in Chicago score almost at the national average. They catch up by more than a grade level um, from third through eighth grade, and that's a much faster rate of growth than the average school district in the country, um, sort of by definition. But there's no other large or even moderately large district that has that fast of a growth rate from third through eighth grade in terms of academic performance. And it's not, you know, it's not just a tiny district where we can attribute it to one or two schools, right? It's, it's uh, happening in this very large place. Not only are Chicago students advancing in achievement faster than in any other large or moderate-sized district, its absolute academic performance has improved dramatically over the years. When we think of Chicago, many people don't think of it as having a particularly effective public education system. That's not the, the sort of standard line. Uh, but, but maybe it does. When Reardon speaks about his findings on Chicago to audiences of education researchers, you can sometimes hear an audible gasp. They don't expect to hear good news about Chicago. He will sometimes say something like, I know, I didn't believe it either. Because it's so surprising, he has gone back and reanalyzed the data and comes up with the same results. I asked Anthony Breich what he thought of Reardon's analysis. Breich is president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and Learning, which is just about a mile away from Reardon's office at Stanford University. Well, the, um, the data that Sean has brought forth is, um, is quite impressive. And it, the, Chicago looks quite different from most other places. I mean, most of them sort of line up along a line, and then Chicago's kind of up here. In case you don't know, Tony Breich is something of a superstar among education researchers. 
At the Carnegie Foundation, he is leading work he calls Improvement Science with colleges and public school systems all across the country. You can find links to his work on our website, www.edtrust.org slash extraordinary districts. Before he went to Carnegie, he was for many years a professor of urban education at the University of Chicago, where he helped start the Consortium on School Research, which we'll hear a lot more about later. Sean's just an incredibly careful analyst, so I'm, I'm pretty confident he's, you know, he found something here that's important to look more closely at. So that's what we'll be doing in this three-part episode on Chicago Public Schools, looking closely. We'll talk with a lot of folks to try to figure out what has caused the district to improve so dramatically and what the rest of us can learn from the Chicago experience. Before we start, I want to say that by necessity, we will not get to everything that's important about Chicago Public Schools, or CPS for short. The district is so large that pretty much any story told about it will leave out something important. But we'll be talking to some folks who hold key pieces of the puzzle. The other thing that seems important to note before we get started is that there's no reason for Chicago to be complacent. It still has a long way to go before it can be considered a high-performing district. But to provide a little context, I want to take us back to 1987, when there was a dispiriting 19-day teacher strike. It was the culmination of a series of strikes over a number of years. To many, the city seemed at a breaking point really uh, got people very um, angry and, and upset, and it got the business community very angry and upset. That's Peter Martinez, who back then was associate director of the Latino Institute. That was part of a larger collection of business groups that was called Chicago United. We're going to hear from Martinez again because he pops up in the story of Chicago several times in several different roles. Back in 1987, Ronald Reagan was president, and his secretary of education was William Bennett. Bennett went to Chicago shortly after that 1987 strike and delivered a withering pronouncement that he later repeated in a speech to the Cato Institute that we have a recording of. I said, this is disaster. This is educational meltdown. Uh, it is the worst school system in the country. Bill Bennett's words declaring Chicago the worst system in the country blared across the city in newspaper and television headlines. They still reverberate in Chicago all these years later. We still go back to that quote. That's Janice Jackson, the chief education officer of Chicago Public Schools. Back in 1987, she was a student. She remembers hearing that the U.S. Secretary of Education had said she was attending the worst system in the nation. Even as a kid here, like, that was crazy. That was crazy. Another person who remembers that time is Jenny Nagaoka. She was a senior in a Chicago public high school. It was really devastating in a lot of ways from a personal sense because it made uh, me feel like I really wasn't prepared or smart enough. You know, I went on to college the next year. Today, with her PhD well behind her, Nagaoka is a highly respected education researcher who studies the Chicago public school system. John Q. Easton is another person who remembers Bennett's pronouncement, but from a different vantage point. Easton can also be considered an educational research superstar. 
He was with the Chicago Consortium for many years, and then from 2009 to 2014, he led the Institute for Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education, a position that led Education Week to call him the country's research czar. Now he works for the Chicago-based Spencer Foundation, but back in 1987, Easton was working in the central office of the Chicago public school system. And there was just a flurry of activity to, you know, let's dispute this. But those who challenged Bennett had a problem. There really wasn't much data to refute him. Of course, there really wasn't much data to support him either. Back then, there really wasn't much data at all. Remember, this was long before the era of No Child Left Behind, which in 2001 ushered in what you could call the era of data. In the 1970s, the federal government had started the National Assessment of Educational Progress to try to get a handle on overall national achievement, and that's what we now call the long-term NAEP. It sampled students from around the country, but it didn't sample states separately. That didn't begin until 1990 with what we call Maine NAEP, and Illinois didn't participate in Maine NAEP until 2000. The data Bennett had used to make his pronouncement that Chicago was the worst district in the country was what you could call skeletal, though still damning. Chicago could only document that about half of its students graduated. That was certainly bad, but it was unclear that that was significantly worse than a lot of other places. But here was the kicker. Of those who graduated and took the ACT college entrance exam, half of them scored in the bottom 1% of the ACT test takers in the nation. That was dismal, but it said nothing about Chicago students' experiences before high school and whether they were learning to read, write, or do math. The fact is, that kind of data really didn't exist, not just in Chicago, but pretty much anywhere. That didn't stop the central office staff, according to John Easton. It set up a, a whole bunch of activity within the district trying to garner statistics that would argue against it. In fact, Bill Bennett told the Cato Institute that he got a call right after he returned to Washington after his Chicago pronouncement. A spokesman from the mayor's office responded immediately and said, uh, we're not the worst, uh, Detroit uh, is the worst. Uh, this is what Justice Holmes would have called what I would say being guilty of low aspirations. Um, Even today, folks in Chicago will sometimes dispute Bennett's statement. But the fact is, if you're an educator or a mayor, you really don't want to be arguing whether your schools are the worst or the second worst in the country. It was kind of sobering. People, it might have um, made people take a deeper, closer look at the school district. Today, with the benefit of a huge amount of data that we now have, Chicago has been identified by Sean Reardon as the school system that advances its kids the most from third through eighth grade. Reardon was just looking at Illinois' state testing scores, but we don't have to rely on them for our information. Since 2002, Chicago has participated in a special sample of the main NAEP with other cities. We can now see how Chicago compares to other cities, states, and the country. I want to give you a statistic about Chicago that seems to me quite telling. In 2011, 48% of Chicago's fourth graders met basic standards for reading. Four years later, 67% of that cohort of students met basic reading standards in eighth grade. Don't get me wrong. All students, or pretty darn close, should at least be meeting basic reading standards. 
but the fact that so many more of the same students met basic reading standards in eighth grade than in fourth grade points to what Sean Reardon found in his analysis. Chicago's kids advance academically as they go through school. No other urban district that participated in NAEP had that kind of increase from fourth to eighth grade in that period of time. And by the way, since Bill Bennett's pronouncement of doom, Chicago has also improved its graduation rates. Today, something on the order of 74% of students are graduating, and their ACT scores have risen steadily through the years. Again, Chicago still has a long way to go before it is where it should be. But looking at the evidence, no one today would dream of putting Chicago in the category of the worst school system in America. And this is true even if you don't think much of test scores as a measure. One person I talked with is Jesse Sharkey, the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. He doesn't follow test scores much. Still, he says Chicago has improved a lot since he first showed up as a teacher in 1998. There's a lot of ways to measure, but here's just an interesting measurement. I'd be interested, I don't know what the numbers are, but like, you know, anecdotally, I'll tell you that a couple of generations ago, most Chicago public school teachers wouldn't have put their own kids in a Chicago public school. You know, uh, and now all the teachers that I know, you know, who are, who are my age or younger have their kids in CPS schools. To go from, arguably, the worst in the nation to the district where students advance academically the most is quite a feat. To go from a system where the teachers wouldn't send their kids to one where they do is also quite a feat. So what happened in Chicago that started it on its trajectory of improvement? That's the question we're going to answer in the rest of this first part of a three-part episode, how the improvement began. In the second part, we'll try to identify the key elements of that improvement, and in the third, we'll go to some schools to see how this improvement plays out on the ground. So where did it all begin? Some people I talked with said that it was Bennett's statement that shocked the city into doing something. Some say it was the teacher strike that spurred action. Tony Brake cited the 1983 election of Harold Washington as mayor. Washington, Chicago's first African-American mayor, was elected amid a surge of anger from parents and community members who thought the schools were not serving their children. Still others cite a nation at risk, the report commissioned by Ronald Reagan that declared that American schools were failing to educate pretty much anyone to a high enough level. Whatever start date you choose, there is consensus that in the 1980s, a broad swath of Chicago came together to say that the situation in the schools was unacceptable and had to change. I think the important thing here is that it's been a long-term commitment by the entire city. I mean, it's in the blood, the groundwater of the system to keep focusing on the school district and improving it. That's Stephanie Banchero. She was a newspaper reporter who covered Chicago public schools for both the Chicago Tribune and the Wall Street Journal for many years. Today, she's education program director for the Joyce Foundation, which is based in Chicago. And what she's talking about is what anyone who spends much time in the city can recognize, that there is a citywide commitment to improving the schools. There are parent and community groups deeply committed to the public schools, as well as businesses, foundations, unions, universities, and nonprofit organizations. That doesn't mean they all agree with each other, but they are all committed to improvement. But back in the 1980s, there was a sense that the system that existed was simply incapable of improvement. Nonprofit groups issued damning reports on dropout rates and truancy. 
business groups said they had trouble hiring Chicago high school graduates. And African-American parents in particular were angered by what many considered to be the racist treatment of their children. After that rancorous 19-day strike in 1987, Mayor Washington called together a mass brainstorming session attended by a 1,000 people. By all accounts, the session was not calm, but it got a lot of criticisms out in public. When Bennett arrived shortly thereafter and called the schools the worst in the nation, he was saying in a more brutal way what others had already said. Mayor Washington suffered a heart attack and died before he could put together a plan. But the process he had started continued, and that led to the Chicago School Reform Act, which passed the Illinois State Legislature in 1988. The Reform Act put in place something unique in the country, school boards for every single Chicago school. Those boards were called Local School Councils, or LSCs. The law specified that the LSCs would consist of six parents, two community members, two teachers, the principal, and, in high schools, a student. Later legislation added one non-teaching staff member. The councils were given three powers by the state legislature. I'm going to let Peter Martinez describe them. Remember, he was part of the Latino Institute then. Three powers, hire and uh, non-renew the contract of the principal, make a decision about the school improvement strategy for the school, and uh, allocate the Title I money portion of their budget. Title I is the money the federal government sends to schools to support students who live in poverty. As part of the state legislation, a lot more Title I dollars went to schools than in the past when the district controlled much of the money. The next year, 5,420 people were elected to more than 500 local school councils. This represented a huge change. It was a way of saying that individual schools were the unit of improvement, and it was a bet on parents and community members as the stewards of that improvement. By this time, after a period of white and middle-class flight, about 80% of students were students of color, most of them African-American, but with a sizable and growing Latino population. 80% of Chicago's student population was eligible for free and reduced-price meals, so the Title I budget of the city was quite large. And foundations began to match some of that money. Illinois has one of the most inequitable funding systems in the country, which means that Chicago public schools have always complained that their funding is not adequate. Money from Chicago foundations didn't necessarily fix that problem, but it did allow some interesting new projects. Annenberg Challenge then came in during the, the 90s, so you have uh, 50 million challenge plus 50 million for... Uh, the match to be able to spark a lot of local-level school reform. That's Terry Mazzani, president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, one of the biggest of the local foundations. The MacArthur Foundation put in $40 million in during the 90s as well. Uh, then fast forward to 2000, the board of the Chicago Community Trust prioritized education as Annenberg closed down as MacArthur closed down, then it was kind of the trust turn. Mazzani first headed up the education portfolio for the Chicago Community Trust and now as CEO, where he has overseen enormous growth. It now makes about $200 million worth of grants a year. 
This is how he sums up that first decade or so of Chicago's improvement efforts. As a result of the efforts in the 80s and 90s, there had formed a fairly aligned and uh, kind of strong uh, aggregation of foundations, civic leaders, businesses, nonprofits that were all organized around strengthening school reform. So with all that new money, individual local school councils were making important decisions that involved as much as a million dollars or even more. Some councils brought in literacy coaches, some brought in music programs. Some of their decisions seemed wise, some seemed less wise. Some councils worked well together, some were rancorous and divided. Very quickly, the question arose, how would anyone know if the councils helped schools improve? What would the evidence be if they did? These were among the questions that led to another unique Chicago innovation, a partnership between the district and a major research university that became known as the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research. And some of the people we've already met were there right at the beginning. Here's Tony Bright talking about his work at the Chicago Consortium. Remember, he's the research superstar now at the Carnegie Foundation. We brought an analytic and empirical discipline to the work. Uh, we assembled some of the best applied social scientists, educational researchers, who we thought knew something about the organization of schools around student learning, the professional development of teachers, uh, what was happening to urban youth. One of the first projects the consortium undertook was an ongoing, serious study of the effect of local school councils on school improvement. This study was supported by a grant from the Chicago-based John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. And the grant was managed by Peter Martinez, who had gone to the foundation from the Latino Institute. I told you he would pop up a couple of times. Martinez wanted to ensure that the research that Tony Breich would lead would actually be helpful to schools and the districts. I had extensive uh, conversations with, with Tony at that point about this has got to be the kind of research that is useful to community groups and practitioners, not to academic you know, priorities. I asked him what he meant. Research involves averages. Uh, you know, and so there are, there, you get this general data picture. Then when you raise the question, so why are those numbers what they are? Then the researchers will say to you, well, the only way we can get into that is we're going to have to, we'd have to do case studies. That's going to cost us. I asked him how he resolved that issue. We gave him more money. <laughs> and that led to a major piece of work by the Chicago Consortium. It was a study of the local school councils published in 1999, 10 years after the founding of the councils. There were quite a few authors of that book, in addition to Tony Bright, and one of them was John Q. Easton, who we heard from earlier. I'm going to let him describe the major findings from that report. This decentralization kind of spurred some improvements, but it pretty much unequally distributed across the system. The schools that uh, didn't improve were much more likely to be high poverty, uh, usually uh, predominantly African-American schools, and the improvements were more likely to occur in slightly more advantaged schools uh, and um, more racially integrated schools. Which is to say that this behemoth of a school district 
had improved. The improvement was uneven and left behind the most vulnerable of its students, but over 10 years there had been forward movement. One finding that shone out from that case studies done as part of the research was that some local school councils were effective and some were not. But just as Peter Martinez had wanted, the Chicago Consortium was able to identify some of the reasons why. And that's part of what we're going to explore in part two. But before we go, I want to recap just quickly what we learned in this part. We learned that Chicago students advance academically more than any large or even moderate-sized district in the country. And we learned that a generation ago, the city came together to work on improving the schools. They adopted a radical strategy that decentralized power into more than 500 schools around the city. That's kind of a simple explanation that covers a lot of complications. If you're interested in a more complicated history than that, we have lots of resources you can explore on our webpage at www.edtrust.org slash extraordinary districts. Go and poke around on our site while you wait for part two, where we'll continue to explore the story of Chicago's surprising improvement. And if you want to enter into a conversation about this podcast, we are on Twitter at hashtag extraordinary districts. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.